Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Well, good morning, everybody. Buenos dias. It's good to see you. Uh, last week, uh, my friend David kicked us off on our Advent series talking about the beginning of the story of the raising of Lazarus. That's where we're going to park um, through Advent. That seems like a weird place to go for Advent, but I wanted to explore the idea of suffering um, and of the light that breaks into the darkness in the season of Advent. Advent is the season where we, of course, anticipate the coming of Jesus, the inbreaking of the light of God into our dark world. And this story of Lazarus is a really great one to explore those themes together. And so last week, I'm sure David did an excellent job uh, kicking us off, starting us off there. Um, David is far cooler than I am, so I'm sure you enjoyed his his presence. Um, but today we're getting into the middle of the story. So last week, Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick. Um, and when he heard it, Jesus told his disciples who were with him, um, we're going to wait. And he waited a couple of days before he left to go to Lazarus's house. Um, and that's, that's always been a puzzling thing. Like, why did Jesus wait? Jesus heard his friend was sick. We know, of course, Jesus can heal. We know that Jesus can restore. And yet he intentionally chose to hold off and not go right to Lazarus when he was ill. Um, so you guys explored that last week. Today, uh, we're getting to the point where Jesus uh, arrives at the scene in the city, in the town of Bethany. So let's read the scripture and then we'll jump in. Uh, we're in John chapter 11, verses 17 to 38. They will be on the screen, or you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible or you don't have a good Bible, you'd like to hold that one, you can have that Pew Bible that's in front of you. You're welcome to take it home. Um, John eleven seventeen to 38. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, 
saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this. Oh, sorry, I flipped two pages. When Jesus saw her crying, and the death's more right. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, would you uh, speak through your word this morning? God, I pray that I would be a conduit for your truth, for your words and your words alone, that no hint of, no hint of untruth would pass my lips. And that, Lord, in the hearts and minds of those who hear today and in the heart of everyone here, your Holy Spirit would be at work rooting the truth of your word, the truth of who you are and who we are in light of you and the mission that you've given us, that it would root deeply into our lives and equip us to live for you, Lord Jesus, glorifying you with our words and our life and our choices and our actions throughout this coming week. God, I pray that even now, as we explore your word, you would be rooting out the sin in our hearts, that we would rest in the forgiveness of our God, and that you would be making us a holy people, set apart for the service of Christ, set apart for the service of our God, and for the purposes of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, be present today. Turn our eyes to Jesus, as you always do, and empower us from this moment on to live for him. In the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So if I asked you, what's more important, your soul or your body, how would you respond? Oh, people actually respond. (laughs) What if I told you 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 were wrong? I love you and you're wrong. Because the answer is yes. Neither one is more important than the other. God made us embodied creatures. Our soul doesn't exist apart from our created reality. Think back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 when God formed the man and the woman out of the dust of the earth and then what? And then breathed life into them. That Hebrew word there is nephesh, which is the same word for soul. It's the breath of God. The idea of of what we are internally, the the soul inside of us is the breath of God that animates our bodies. God created us integrated beings, physical and spiritual, all as one. This is why that heaven is not a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around in the sky. Heaven, ultimately, at the end, will be an embodied existence. This is why resurrection is so vital to the Christian life and so vital to the Christian gospel. We were not meant to live apart from a physical body, apart from a physical reality. 
And ultimately, when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? We will rise physically. We will be embodied physically. The, the end of all things is not a spiritual existence without bodies. The end of all things is God remaking this earth into the place he always intended it to be with embodied beings. God created the man and the woman. He created the physical world. And what did God say? God said it was good. Not only good, but very good. Good, good in Hebrew. God looks at you and me in our physical embodied existence and says, good, good. I want you to have bodies. And unfortunately, we live in sometimes in a Christian world, in a Christian life, that dabbles in what's called Gnosticism. That's a, that's a big, like, $10 word for something that was going on when the Apostle John was writing his gospel and then was writing his letters. It was, it was this idea that, that what really matters is the soul. What really matters is the immaterial, the spiritual part. That the physical doesn't really matter. And the people who were teaching this would go on to say that Jesus wasn't actually crucified. That Jesus only appeared to be crucified so that, so that we would imagine that he was crucified, but, but that in fact, Jesus' spirit left his body before he died, or, or Jesus only looked like he was crucified, but in fact, his, his spirit didn't endure any harm. And unfortunately, this is sometimes an idea that creeps into our modern Christian thought, that what really matters is the soul. And so you get, you get people who say, like, you know, the, the social situation of people isn't really important. God doesn't really care too much about poverty or about oppression or about the physical struggles of the world. What God really wants is the salvation of souls. And that's what really matters. That's what the church is to really be about. And all this other stuff is just woke nonsense. That's anti-gospel. That's anti-good news. But on the other hand, you end up with people who reacting against that go so far as to say, well, you know, there's, there's like the salvation of souls. But then what really God cares about is making sure that everybody has what they need physically in the here and now. God is really caring about justice in the here and now. God's really caring about provision in the here and now. God cares about bodies and God cares about systems. And the, the, the salvation of souls is secondary, if important, at all. And you get these two extremes where one reacts against the other and they each exclude the other. But God cares deeply about both your and my soul and the condition of my soul and our physical embodied reality and existence right now. God cares deeply about justice where there is injustice. God cares deeply about justice for the oppressed. God cares deeply about people having what they need and flourishing in this life. And God cares deeply about the salvation of souls because hell is a reality and separation from Jesus, separation from God is a reality. And there's only one way to true eternal life and that's through Jesus Christ. These both are the gospel and we cannot separate them. If... The incarnation of Jesus teaches us anything. It is that God cares deeply about our bodies and our souls. About the state of the physical reality in which we live and the systems and the world in which we're a part and the state 
of our eternal existence, the state of our souls. Salvation is bedrock. Salvation for our souls and flourishing for our bodies are both essential to the good news of Jesus. And I think that's, that's part of what is illustrated here in this story is Jesus comes to meet Mary and Martha. Now, here's what's really cool about this. Here's, here's one of the things that really drives home some of the authenticity and the reliability of the Bible. Mary and Martha here in John look a lot like Mary and Martha in the story in Luke. If, if, you've, if you're familiar with, with Mary and Martha, and even people who aren't familiar with the Bible sometimes get this, understand kind of the Mary and Martha thing. Uh, there's this episode in Luke where Mary and Martha are serving dinner to Jesus and his disciples. And Martha's doing some work in the kitchen. Martha's getting ready. Um, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet with the disciples, with the, the people who Jesus is, is leading, who he's teaching. And that was weird because typically women didn't sit at the feet of a rabbi, right? That's not normal in this society. But Mary was sitting there amongst all the other students, equal with the disciples, listening to Jesus and receiving from him while Martha was working. And Martha comes to Jesus and she's like, uh, Jesus, would you tell my sister to help me, please? And Jesus tells Martha in that moment, Mary's chosen better, sitting at my feet. And it's so funny that that happens in the Gospel of Luke, right? But we come here to the Gospel of John, and we see their personalities, Mary and Martha's personalities, coming out very much in the way they respond to Jesus here. Jesus is on his way to Bethany. Now, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, about one and three-quarters miles to the east of Jerusalem, up over the Mount of Olives. You might have heard the Mount of Olives before. So here's what you got. You got the wall of Jerusalem the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And then from there, you go down into the Kidron Valley and then up and you've got the Garden of Gethsemane that's right on this road going into the wall of Jerusalem, right into the temple in Jerusalem. And then you go up the Mount of Olives and just on the other side of that is the town of Bethany. And this is where Mary and Martha live with their brother Lazarus. Now, these people are wealthy. Every indicator that we have from the Gospels is that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are actually, they're a very wealthy family. They probably live with their father. Um, Lazarus is probably a pretty young guy. Chances, I mean, if he's still living at home with his sisters, with his family, he's a pretty young dude. He's not like an older man, we would imagine. Um, and so Jesus somehow has gotten to know these. Now, we don't get the backstory. We don't know how Jesus knows these people, but he knows them, and he's connected to them. And he, he deeply, deeply loves these people. And so Jesus now, having decided to come after hearing Lazarus was sick, and then telling his disciples in the last episode that Lazarus has fallen asleep, i.e. he has died, Jesus is now making his way to Bethany. And Jesus gets almost to Bethany. He's not quite there. Martha hears he's on his way, and Martha gets up and leaves. Mary stays at home to mourn. She is so brokenhearted. She, she just can't act. She needs to just sit in her mourning. But Martha's the actor here. Martha's the one who needs to move. You can imagine she's not the person who can sit in her grief. She's got to do something. She's that one who's going to busy herself, right, to, to help her get her mind off her grief for a moment. And so Martha can't just sit still. She gets up to go meet Jesus. So they're not to Bethany yet. 
Martha gets up to go meet Jesus. She sees him. And then she says, Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, there's no accusation in this statement based on what she says right after this. She's not accusing Jesus. She's not mad at Jesus. There's no indicator in the text that she's mad at Jesus. She She just knows that to be the truth. And so it's an expression of her faith. I have faith in you. I know what you can do. And I know if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But, she says, but even now, I know that God will answer your prayer. She's saying, I know you're a righteous man. I know you're one who God listens to and God responds to. I know you're one who possesses the power of God. You are empowered by the Spirit of God. I know that if you ask for something, the Lord will give it to you. Now, she doesn't say what it is she expects. And I don't think she has any clue in her mind that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But she goes and she expresses her faith to Jesus. And Jesus, looking at her, I imagine with a great deal of compassion, responds to this this profession of faith with your your brother will rise again. And this is great, because he doesn't specify when or how, just your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yes, Lord, I know he'll rise on the last day. And that's true. This is, this is one of the things that made the Pharisees different from the Sadducees. You know about the Pharisees and Sadducees, and there are all these different little religious groups. Jewish people at the time were not like one big group that all had the same beliefs. Um, so the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection, that at the last day when God made all things right, he would raise all his people from the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection or an afterlife. They were mainly about the here and now. And so Martha believes like the Pharisees, and Jesus affirms that, yes, there will be a resurrection on the last day. We're not meant just to live our 70, 90 years and then die. God means to raise us up to eternal life in the future. And so Martha says, yes, Lord, I know he'll rise again. And Jesus wants to drive home just who he is. He sees her faith in him. And now he wants to make sure she understands exactly how powerful, exactly who he really is. And so Jesus responds to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Me. There's not some like amorphous future resurrection that is disconnected from what's happening here. I want you to know, Martha, if there's hope for Lazarus, it is through me. Now, if Jesus ain't God at this point, this is the most arrogant thing he can possibly say, and the most damaging thing he could say. I mean, this is, this is abusive if he isn't who he claims to be. If Jesus is not God right then, and he says that to Martha to build up her hope, then this is an abuse of the truth. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then there's all the hope in the world in those words. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying, cement your hope in me. Cement your belief in me. And those who believe in me will never die. That resurrection you're talking about, Martha, that belongs to my followers. That belongs to the people who believe in me, who follow me, who listen to me. I am the resurrection and the life. And so it is through me that Lazarus will be raised. And at this point, again, there's no indication of when this is going to happen. 
This is still some future thing. But Jesus reaffirms her faith. He reaches her through her head and into her heart. This is who Martha is. Jesus meets Martha in her grief right where she is, knowing exactly her personality and how she needs to be cared for and loved in this moment. And he goes right to the point of her faith, right to the point of her belief, and he comforts her there. Because this is how God works. God, who crafted you in the womb, God who knit you in the womb, knows exactly how you're made and how to comfort you in the exact way that you need to be comforted. If he needs to go right to the point of your faith and your belief to bring you that comfort, that's where he's going to go. And so now, having had this conversation with Martha, she leaves to go get Mary. Now, there's more to this conversation than we have written down. The Bible is not exhaustive in everything it tells us. There's clearly more that happens here because Martha leaves to go back to the house and she tells Mary, hey, Jesus is here and he's calling for you. Now, John didn't write that down for us. And so we know there's more conversation. And at that moment, Mary gets up in her grief and she goes. And there are all these Jewish people from Jerusalem who have gathered to comfort her and to mourn with her. And so they see Mary leave, and they follow her too. And Mary comes, and where Martha came and immediately started talking to Jesus about the resurrection, where she needed that comfort in her faith, Mary comes and she falls weeping at Jesus' feet. She's wailing. She's mourning. And Jesus she, look, she looks up to Jesus and she says, if you had been here, the same words her sister said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet, even in the exact same words, you can imagine a difference in tone there, right? You can imagine when Martha gets there, she's been busy, she's been trying to distract herself from her grief. She's, 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 she's got to do something. And so she comes to Jesus and she says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know anything you ask, God will give you. She's rational. She's thinking. Mary comes and she's a big ball of emotions right at the moment. She can't do anything but fall at Jesus' feet, weeping and wailing and say, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And that's all she can get out. And Jesus looks at her with compassion when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And then Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. He looked upon his daughter. He looked upon Mary, whom he loved dearly. Mary, who had sat at his feet and listened to him, Mary, who he had counted as an equal with his male disciples, Mary, who Jesus had elevated from her status in society, Mary, whom his heart broke for in the moment Jesus looked at her at his feet in her grief and could do nothing but weep with her. Because our God meets you where you are and knows your heart and what you need. He didn't, he didn't greet her with truths about the faith. He didn't meet her with theology. He met her in her brokenness and wept with her. And he looked around 
at all these other people weeping and mourning, and we're told that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, there's a problem with that because the original, the Greek of this, does not say deeply moved. It says he was outraged. Our English translators have made it softer for us. But that's really such a tragic thing. Because like we read this, and, and if you were reading this story and you came across the word outraged, you might be thrown off a little bit, right? What's Jesus outraged about? But Jesus looks at this, Mary at his feet. He looks at the people mourning with her. And Jesus is outraged. And then he weeps with Mary. And then we're told in the next verse, once again, that Jesus looks around and he is deeply moved. He is outraged. Jesus is angry and he's sad. And he's feeling all the emotions you or I might feel in this moment. Jesus is looking at the death of Lazarus, this unjust, untimely death brought on by the brokenness of the world, and Jesus is angry at it. He's angry at the sin that's broken the world. He's angry at a world where kids get sick. He's angry at a world where people have to mourn their little brothers dying. Jesus is angry about a world where things like this can happen. And he's moved with compassion and love for the people who are in the middle of it. And he's also angry at the unbelief, at the people who mourn like there's no hope. The ones who have come and are in despair. Jesus is angry about the state of the world. Jesus is angry about the sin that's broken the world. Jesus is angry about the diseases that ravaged the human body. Jesus is angry at the systems that have harmed and hurt people. Jesus is angry. And Jesus is compassionate and meets his children in their grief and validates their grief and validates their mourning. So often we think of God and we think of Jesus as kind of one-dimensional You've got the group of people out there who want to think of Jesus only as this puffy, soft, give you a hug, affirm everything about you, never challenge you on anything, just tell you everything's going to be okay and pat you on the back and send you on your way kind of guy. And then you've got the people who think God is just angry all the time at everybody for everything. You ever heard a preacher like that? Well, they're terrible. Like God is just mad. And you're under his wrath, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. And we look at God as this one-dimensional character. And yet here in Jesus, we see the full scope of human emotion. If you've got a loved one with cancer dealing with it, going through it, and you're not thinking, F cancer, something's wrong with you. If you've got someone who passes away untimely and you're mourning them, but you're also not pissed off about the reasons that they died, something's up. And Jesus looks at the reasons Lazarus died and he's outraged in his spirit. 
but he weeps and mourns with his child Mary. God experiences the full range of our emotions because God created them. Sometimes we're afraid to, to, to give God emotions. Sometimes we're afraid to portray God as being an emotional being because our emotions are so often disordered. Our emotions have control over us. They have power over us. Too many times we're afraid of our own emotions and the way that they might carry us to places we don't want to go. So we don't want to attribute emotions to God because we're afraid of what that might mean if God get carried away. But we've, we've done exactly the opposite of what we should do. God is all of our emotions. God experiences all of the emotions. God created them. He just does it perfectly and has perfect control and mastery. And so God feels anger to a degree we can't imagine. And yet God feels compassion and love to a degree we can't imagine. God knows what it is to feel like one of us, to be one of us, and experience all the range of our emotion, but to experience them in a holy, perfect way where they don't have control over him. This is our God. This is the God who weeps with us and who throws the finger to cancer. This is the God who mourns with us and says, yes, you are right to be angry at that injustice. You are right to be angry at that disease. You are right to be upset about the brokenness of a world that takes life too soon or takes life at all. God is more angry about death than you are. And yet God sits and mourns with his people. This is the God on display in Jesus Christ. And whatever we see Jesus doing is what God is doing. Jesus said this explicitly to some leaders who were challenging him. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. The God we see displayed in Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. And how Jesus responds is how God responds. And Jesus, when he sees brokenness and mourning, weeps and is outraged. Of course, we know what's coming. We know what's going to happen. We know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus. But let me ask you, if the story stopped here, would Jesus still be good? If the story stopped right here and Jesus were to affirm the resurrection that is coming to Martha and Jesus were to weep with Mary and Jesus were to say, I am mad about the brokenness and sinfulness of the world that led to Lazarus' death, but then he didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. Would he still be good? Martha thinks so. I think Mary thinks so. For us, in our lives, most of the time, most of the time, we're going to sit in this place with Jesus. And the challenge to us is to affirm that God is still good. Most of the time, the cancer won't be healed. Most of the time, 
The disease won't go away. Most of the time, we're still going to live in a broken, sinful world. And the challenge to us is to go to God, to go to Jesus, to see the God who weeps with us and who mourns with us and who is outraged at the brokenness and say, God, you are still good. I still love you. To say with Martha and with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, you can deliver us. But whether you do or whether you don't, you're the only God for me. That's the challenge for you and me. Let's forget about the happy ending for a moment. And instead of looking to the short-term happy ending, the raising of Lazarus, let's look to the end of all things. Let's root ourselves deeply in the fact that our good and faithful and just and sovereign God has all things in his hand. And no matter what happens to us in the here and now, God is still good. God is still on the throne. And a promise of resurrection at the end of the age is just as good as a promise of resurrection tomorrow. Let's not fall into the lie that if God doesn't show up and give us exactly what we want, when we want, how we want it, he's not really God or something's wrong with our faith. And instead, hold tight to the God who promises resurrection and that he will ultimately make all things right. Let's truly hold on to the faith in a God who is outraged at the sin of the world and the brokenness of the world and promises us, I will fix it. I will make it right. But right now, God may be asking you and me to wait. Wait and deepen our faith in the God who mourns with us. Show up for one another and mourn and be the arms of Jesus around another person. To always point one another to the resurrection that is to come. Always point one another to the God who is outraged by sin and mourns with us and has a plan to make all things right. This is good news. The resurrection of all things at the end, the resurrection of God's people at the end of all things, the, the final day when Jesus will return and make all things right is as sure and steady a hope as there is. And it doesn't have to happen tomorrow. It doesn't have to happen right now. It is coming and we can hold firm to that. You see, early in the history of the church, the, the followers of Jesus got caught in this very problem. You see, they, they had friends who were dying. And Jesus hadn't come back yet. And they were worried, they were concerned. What's going to happen? Our, our, we've got people dying in the church and Jesus hasn't returned. So, so what do we do? How do we mourn? And the Apostle Paul writing... In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, writes this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says to a grieving church whose members have passed away and who are afraid that they won't be here when Jesus comes back, the hope of resurrection is where your hope is. Anchor yourselves, root yourselves in the hope of resurrection to come. That Jesus will rise us all again. And so encourage one another. Encourage one another with the hope of resurrection. Encourage one another to hold tight to the promise of Jesus to make all things right. Whether it happens now or when he comes back. And root yourself, anchor yourself in the God whose promises are solid, in the God whose promises are firm. Root yourself in this promise of resurrection because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But in order to be rooted in that promise, we have to have faith in Jesus. And this is where the rub comes in. This is only good news if we believe in and have pledged ourselves to the God whose promises are strong, to the one who is the resurrection and the life. This is only hope and encouragement if we've put our faith in Jesus and said, Jesus, you are my king, you are my life, and we've given ourselves over to him. If we've confessed our sin, been renewed by his Holy Spirit, and made alive in Jesus Christ, this is only good news if, like Martha and Mary, we can look to Jesus and say, Lord, if you'd been here, the bad thing wouldn't happen, and yet I believe in you. I trust in you. I put my hope in you. Today, if you want the hope of resurrection, if you don't want this hope in a resurrection to just be empty words, if you want a solid hope in the promises of God, a solid hope in the God who is angry at sin and has promised to make all things right one day, if you want a solid hope in the powerful God who wraps his arms around us and mourns with us and promises us resolution and healing and restoration, then come to the foot of the cross where God once for all dealt with our sin, dealt with everything that would separate us from him so that we could be united to him in this hope of resurrection. So that like Mary and Martha, like Lazarus who would be raised again, like the followers of Jesus, like the people in the city of Thessalonica, we can say, my hope is in the God who restores. My hope is in the God who resurrects. My hope is in the God who comforts me and promises me a resolution in the end. Come to Jesus. Root yourself in Jesus. Commit yourself to a new loyalty to Jesus today. Lay yourself down at the foot of the cross as Mary laid herself down at the feet of Jesus. Give him your life in exchange for the life that he has to give. Lord God, I pray today that as we look to you, the God who cares about our bodies and our souls, the God who has promised us resurrection in the end, 
the God who has promised to make all things right, who has given us a precursor in the life of Jesus, a solid promise in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and an eternal hope to look forward to in the coming of our King. That, Lord, as we look to you, you would root us in the hope of resurrection. God, would you renew our hearts today? Give us a new loyalty, Holy Spirit. Make us true to you. Father, as we come to the table to partake of the body and blood of Jesus, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be lifted up, that our eyes would be lifted to Jesus, the one whose body was broken for us, the one who endured death on our behalf to give us this resurrection life the one who walked through the worst that the world had to offer and came out victorious on the other end and promises us the same victory. Would you root us ever more deeply in the hope that you and you alone can give? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.